My name is Roy. I come from Northern Ireland. I'm, I was a surgeon. I retired, and I love Israel. And I'm in Bethel at the moment, and I listen to Israel National Radio. Hello, I'm Katie. I'm originally from Glasgow. I live in England. I love Israel. Always have done. Want to support the Jews, and I listen to Israel National Radio. You are listening to IsraelNationalRadio.com. Shalom, 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 and welcome back once again, folks, to the Noah Hyde Nation show. Uh, we're certainly glad to be here, but we're even more glad that you're here along with us. I'm your co-host, Ray Patterson, and as always, I've got my friend and cohort, Adam Penrod. Adam, you glad to be here, too? I am. I'm, I'm glad to be cohorting. <laughs> you're a good cohorter. Thank you. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that. <laughs> well, no, you're the first one, actually. <laughs> and, uh, folks, we appreciate you uh, sending in the messages that you did, uh, welcoming Adam and I back. It was certainly uh, nice of you to do that, uh, and particularly so because I forgot to give you the email address. How could you do it, right? I just don't see it. I don't know. I slapped my hand just severely. So I, I, this week I'm going to make sure that I do that. And, in fact, let me go ahead and get that out of the way right now. Uh, for those of you who would uh, like to maybe welcome us back, but definitely you can use this to send in your comments about the show. Uh, it's Hyde at IsraelNationalRadio.com. So I'm glad I got that out of the way. And as promised, folks, uh, we were uh, talking about being able to talk a little bit about the effort of some folks in Wisconsin. I, I'm doing my best to keep it nameless, but I don't think it's going to work for the entire show. <laughs> but uh, we had some exciting news, at least what I consider exciting news. Uh, for those of you who are uh, in the United States, uh, I think a lot of us were kind of glued to uh, the TV to find out what those results were going to be in, in Wisconsin. Uh, I know my wife and I were, and I know a lot of our friends were. How about you, Adam? Did yeah, I was. I was uh, very, uh, very happy to see what happened. It was. Uh, it's pretty tense on both sides. Big, big deal. And um, this was a. This is basically a union state, one against the union in right, part. Right. Right. And it's it's an amazing number too because I mean the, the people really stood up. I, th- I think people are waking up all over the country based on a lot of things I'm, I'm hearing lately and uh, votes that have taken place lately. And uh, the thing that's really interesting is all the money the union spent to, to take out this conservative governor. And he turns around and beats his opponent by a, a wider spread than what the first election spread was. Right. Originally, he won by one point. And <laughs> right. This one, he won by seven points. It's, uh, yeah. And it's a huge statement as far as I'm concerned. Sure. Uh, I, I think that all everyone's eyes were watching this because the, the, depending on where the vote fell, a lot of people felt like that was then going to determine where the course of this country was going to go. And something I didn't expect to see, although I guess I should because it's been happening more and more, not just what happened in the race itself, its outcome, but we even had Bill Clinton taking some pot shots at Obama <laughs> over this. You know, here, here 
oh, you know, Bill Clinton is out there. He's campaigning for Barrett. Where's Obama at? Obama's nowhere to be seen. Bill Clinton called him on it. This is a show of weakness. A lot of people see that the president, his press secretary, was asked, you know, where does he come down on Barrett? Didn't answer right away. Finally had to, to, to send out an email update to let everybody know that we do support him. Well, that showed a lot of confidence. They had to step back and think about it for a little bit. And uh, Bill Clinton called him on it. And Bill Clinton, this isn't the first time he's... No. Uh, I mean, even more recently than that, even, uh, he was out in front of, you know, on national TV, uh, uh, basically uh, telling the world, (laughs) for sure the United States, that we should definitely keep the the Bush tax cuts in place, which of course is something that Obama and his team are are, uh, using uh, to promote that you know we want to get rid of uh, take some money from the wealthy we want to keep the uh, taxes low for the people who guess what folks aren't paying taxes um and and for bill clinton to come out and say that it's like what I, i mean i sat there just absolutely stunned that he would he actually would say that out loud on national tv to keep the the bush which is a direct punch to the gut of obama (laughs) <laughs> well, this is, uh, you know, startling for a number of different reasons. Bill Clinton, I guess, has been keeping his mouth shut so his <laughs> wife could uh, maintain her position. I guess he's getting a little fed up. I, yeah. I don't know. He, yeah. he doesn't seem to like Obama at all. Yeah, I think those days are over. Maybe maybe this is also a sign of what Clinton thinks is going to happen in this upcoming election. I mean, just think about it. If, if Clinton thought Obama was going to win, wouldn't he want to maintain his silence to maintain Hillary's place in the administration. Right. But here he is coming out, poking holes all throughout Obama's campaign and strategy. and Maybe it's because Bill Clinton feels like, you know, this guy isn't going to win this next election. I can say whatever I want to now. Well, and quite honestly, uh, I mean, Hillary has done a pretty decent job is in her position of a secretary of state. But when you see her, she looks really tired. You sure. know, I mean, she just looks worn out. Out. I mean, tell me. I'm telling you, I don't feel sorry for these folks. When I've seen her, though, especially lately, I feel bad for her. I mean, yes. she looks like she's just been pasted. <laughs> she's been hurting. Uh, but I think you're right. Bill's out there just pretty much saying whatever he, he wants. And it was very surprising, too, when he was talking uh, about Romney and oh, yeah. in his time at Bain, that with this man's business experience, it more than qualifies him to be president. Because Obama is saying he's not. It's the exact opposite, he, right? The exact opposite. Right. Obama and his people are saying, this guy, <laughs> you know, he doesn't have any real experience. You know, that's ironic coming from the Obama camp. Since, yeah. You know, the only uh, qualifications Obama had to recommend him as president or, you know, or anything was his community building experience. Yeah. Yeah. What do they call community organizer? Right. That's where it's, he started. I mean, I don't know if he's got any people jobs doing that. He certainly didn't do it when he was teaching classes. Let me ask and you And he this. didn't do it as a senator either. Let, let so. me ask you this. If I were out and I uh, organized an angry mom, a mob, <laughs> could I also be called a community organizer? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, what does that even mean? But anyway, back to, you know, so it's ironic that here he is. You know, trying to attack someone who knows something about business, and uh, Clinton just came out and said, "No, he's he's got the qualifications. What you're saying is wrong." Yeah, and there's every reason. To, I mean, for people to think 
that he doesn't. If you voted for Obama because of his qualifications, Romney's head and shoulders above what Obama was. In fact, I even think that with Obama having the three years experience as a president. Oh, my goodness. I mean... He's just... He's actually... Obama's the last, over the last three years has shown us how... Uh, inexperienced in, he is. In, incompetent <laughs> he is to be president, really. Right. You know, in this... Or incompetent maybe he is competent maybe this is maybe he's been trying to run the, the country in the ground on purpose but let's give him the benefit of the doubt we'll say we'll say he's just incompetent you know well there's days i can't give him that benefit of the doubt because i i, I can't understand why people continued to do the same things that are causing failure and they do it over and over and over again they never learn from history but this is different it seems like he's doing it with aggression. And, you know, we know that he's a socialist. Uh, in fact, quite frankly, I think he's a closet communist. But, you know, that's for, that's for another day. But I guess, again, kind of to, to bring things back into where we really wanted to go with this, uh, last week we talked about can Christians, you know, vote for a guy like Romney uh, because he's, uh, you know, they, they might not like his religious affiliation. And uh, so uh, yeah, we want to kind of look at that uh, again today as far as can Christians vote for Obama again? Or how, I mean, maybe we shouldn't say Christians, but can religious people vote for Obama again? Because it's not just Christians. Jews voted for him in big numbers. Uh, the the uh, uh, the Muslim community voted for him in big numbers by wide margins. They voted for him. You know, I gotta I gotta wonder what are they going to do this time? It just seems so obvious. I mean, I'm not particularly a, a, a political person, but to me, it just seems that this country is in such dire straits, and it seems that. Um, Everything Obama has promised to do, he hasn't done. Um, the things that we would expect him to do as the president, he hasn't done. Um, he's not even he doesn't even represent himself as being very presidential. All he, he does in his lectures is blame the American people or the, yeah, blame the blame somebody else or blame someone else. It's never his fault. And as as far as somebody being a leader and and having that as their position every time up there, you got to really question. Uh, his, his his ability to lead because somebody who's a true leader, they can point to themselves and say, hey, you know what, that's my fault. Absolutely, that's my responsibility. But no, this this guy simply can't do there's, it. There's no way we would we would require anybody to be perfect. You know, politics is a tricky tricky game. It's something that you you know you have to make compromises sometimes when you don't want to make compromises. Otherwise, you don't get anything done. But this you know. But the funny thing is, is Obama's gotten everything he ever wanted. He's gotten it. Yeah. Why is he blaming other people? You know? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, that's a question I, I not, can't answer. Not being able to accept responsibility shows that he shouldn't be a leader. Yeah, well, I just think they would just, you ask them that question, their default position is, is well, Bush did it. You know, that's where that's you know, when you can't think of anything else is back to the bush did it yeah. uh you know and i'm i've about had it with that but you know what i think uh, even even beyond that i think uh we as a people we as a nation of people uh have really gotten complacent i mean we do not take our right to vote very seriously um and and i think 
in fact, one of the things that just recently came out, I mean, all of us, we've been hearing about the uh, uh, the, the Florida uh, Voting Commission is trying to purge their records of, you know, people who are dead and uh, illegal aliens and, you know, people who obviously can't vote for one reason or another. Uh, and this administration is trying to stop them. And it just seems absurd to me. Why would you want to prevent them from purging their, their voter roster of people who are dead now i know in chicago dead people get to vote and it's you know it's just the way they do business there but not on a national scale and not everyone is like chicago um but it is it's remarkable to me and then you know they turn around and the whole thing is about the picture ids you you know you shouldn't require ids to be able to take a vote all you need to do is just show up and then we find out it and in, in, in all of Obama's book signings, you have to have a picture ID to go in and get your book signed. Now, you tell me, how does that work? I, I, can't, how, I, I can't get into the why without a picture ID. I know. It's, it's, it's completely absurd, you know? That's what I don't understand, is how we have been blind for so long. And... And I'm saying so long with the hope that it is now ending. Because I really believe, from what I have been seeing lately, evil is beginning to get exposed. That being one of them, this whole voter thing, how can you, How? what's more important? Getting a book signed that you need a picture ID? Or voting for the next president of the United States? Right. How can you require an ID so that you make sure that they've got an ID to come and get your book signed? But... Not the voter ID in in Florida. No need for it. I don't get that. Right. And people buy into it. And that, that, that's amazing. But I also think people are waking up. Uh, and I think this vote in Wisconsin helped to, to prove that. Wisconsin's a tough state. They're tough on uh, conservatives. They're, they got a lot of union strength. But I think the unions <laughs> lost some footing there. I think people are starting to wonder about the unions. Where are the unions' priorities yeah. at this point? Yeah. If I were a union member, I'd wondered that too. Yeah, well, I, you have to kind of think that some of those union people actually voted for Walker because at the end of the day, it's all about keeping your job. <laughs> and Walker has been, the jobs have been gaining uh, since he's taken over and, and restructured some things, which is great news for Wisconsin. Sadly, it's bad news for conservatives because Obama, of course, will take credit for that. Right. Uh, you know, I guess you can't get away from that kind of stuff so, happening. Someone, but someone characterized Obama's understanding of the financial world is that he wants to tell people, he wants to tell entrepreneurs. <laughs> he does this all the time in the press, right? Mm-hmm. You just need to create more jobs. Yeah. Why aren't you creating Why more jobs? Why aren't you creating more jobs? What's the matter with you? <laughs> you know, in his mind, it's like entrepreneurs just kind of wave a magic wand and go, oh, look, I have all these jobs now that I can I can pay people. Uh, you know, he doesn't understand even how to how to create jobs. And, and, and I don't know. It just seems to me that people are putting their faith in this guy. Well, here's here's so I don't know if you've heard this yet. Yeah. Uh, you know, they always brag that he's as, since he's become president, he's created you know over four million jobs, which we know is a big joke. Uh, but we had the e- they had the EPA testifying uh, before Congress, and they got into this line of questioning as to what constitutes a green job, and 
based upon the definition that the EPA has for a green job, one of the questions, for example, was if you are a janitor and you're cleaning up the floor, you're sweeping up the floor at Solyndra, is that a green job? The answer was yes. Wow. They they said if a gas station attendant is putting gas into a hybrid car, is that a green job? Based on their definition, the guy said yes, wow. that's a green job. So that's how they're getting their numbers. And especially with the green job creation, that's how they're getting their numbers. But they're not getting their numbers. Obama keeps coming out with predictions about growth, (laughs) job growth, right, Right. in the the industry. And he's not hitting his numbers. Even like 8 or 9% is where we're at right now. For what? The unemployment? For unemployment. Uh, I think right now we're running at 8.2. But every time they come out with a number, like a recent number was 377. And they're expecting that to be revised up to 380, possibly 390. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were talking about this, that uh, 64 out of the last 65 weeks, the numbers that they came out with first, as far as the people getting newly unemployed, right. has been revised up mm-hmm. 64 to 65 weeks. That's, that's I don't know. That's it staggers the mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, here we go. Back to the question. <laughs> will, do you believe that religious people will vote for Obama once again? Is this a, a, a man, I'm asking Noahides, okay? Let's go with Noahides now. Based upon what we believe as Noahides and our faith and what Torah has to say about how you get along with your fellow man, how you relate to uh, Hashem, everything that we know as, as Noahides, right? Could a Noahide vote for Obama? Now, I'm a Noahide who could not vote for Obama because he believes in the you know, killing of, of babies, and uh, I don't know, and I'm sure you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, but the only place where I know that there is even the option of abortion is when the mother's life is threatened, and uh, the Torah considers her life to be more important, and that, but there, there may be others, I, I can't think of any, I don't know of any, but that one I know is, but on an overall basis, that's not what he stands for. I mean, if I am, it's just, you know, take them all. Um, so for me, from a, from a moral, ethical standpoint, as it relates to the Noahide laws, I could never do that. Now, of course, Catholics say that they, too, believe like we believe that uh, abortion's out. Contraception is out. I mean, they're very, very hardcore about it. But last year, a great majority of them voted for Obama. So my question is, again, now now that he has proven who he is, will they still vote for him? Well, you know, I think you have to understand it. It works out like this. Some people vote based on religious beliefs. Some people vote based on political concerns. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Catholics in this country are actually a minority and the minority votes to, are traditionally going with the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Right. So, right. I don't think that you know that had anything to do with religion. I, had to, I think they had to do with politics. I, I, religion is probably the wrong word. Right and wrong. Yeah. You know, I, I, religion is a man-made word. Anyway, go on. I know what you're saying. The question here is is not about just just religion. I think that's good. I think that that for any moral person, you, you certainly don't want to have an immoral person in office. Now, how many politicians would we have to kick out of office? <laughs> 
based on that assessment, <laughs> most of them, I would I would think at least. And you know how you do it? One at a time. One at a time. There you go. <laughs> yes, and with great severity. Um, but, uh, you know, from a political standpoint, let's say that the reason that, that Wisconsin was won was because people in the union voted for voted for the governor. What that's saying is is that in spite of the political beliefs they hold to, right. they're saying that was Wisconsin a referendum on, on Barack Obama? Yes. Whether people will admit it or not, it definitely was. Yeah. On his, on his policies. On not his on policies. Him. On his I mean, policies. His absolutely. beliefs, definitely. Because his, <laughs> his, his policies are what led have led this country to where it is right now. Right. And I think that people are seeing that. Uh, you know, everybody is all for ideology up until, you know, they have to pay the food bill. Right. There you go. And I think that, you know, um, people in Wisconsin, the, the Democrats would have loved to have voted for Barrett. Love, they would have loved to. But, you know, geez, I kind of need to eat. I need to take care of my family. That's what's going on. And I think that this is a sign of what's going to come in this, in this upcoming election is that people are going to say, okay, I can vote for Obama. This was, uh, you know, why was Obama even voted in to begin with? He didn't have the credentials. He didn't no. have no. what you would look for in a president. No. He had one thing. He seemed presidential. He could he could uh, give himself the feeling that this was a person that could be respected. This is a person that carried himself well, was, was very intelligent. And you could see him leading the country. Yeah, he could do what that La Quinta guy, the salesman staying at La Quinta. Right. He could sell ice cubes to Eskimos. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? When it turns out that the Eskimos find out you're not selling them ice cubes, you're you're selling them rocks instead, you know, quartz crystals. Um, and they're biting into it, and it's not doing anything for them. Then they're not going to, you know, they're not going to buy anything from you again. I think people are are are, are, reg- are realizing that uh, you know we we bought ice, you know, we we bought we bought his what he had to say the last time, but he hasn't been able to prove himself out. Right, and I think that's where we are. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're also at the bottom of the hour. And you and I need to sneak out of here so we can uh, take a break here, folks. We're glad you're you're with us. We hope you join us on the other side. Talk to you soon. See you soon. This is a moment in Jewish history. In the early 1960s, Eli Cohen became a spy for Israel. Posing as a wealthy Arab businessman, he gained the confidence of many prominent government officials in Syria. Cohen learned many military secrets before he was caught, tortured and executed in 1965. Two years later, during the Six-Day War, Israel used Cohen's information to easily defeat the overconfident Syrian army. One of his brilliant feats was to recommend that trees be planted to shade the soldiers' outposts. The Israeli army then knew the exact location of every one of them because of the trees. To this day, his body is still in Syria. His widow has been campaigning for its release and return, but stated that it should not be in exchange for freeing terrorists. This Jewish History Moment was brought to you by Israel National Radio.
Shalom and welcome back everybody. Appreciate you sticking around with Adam and I for the second half of the Noahide Nation show. Uh, we do have Rabbi Cat coming up here uh, shortly. So we're going to go ahead and kind of finish up what Adam and I were, were discussing. And uh, of course we were talking about you know the big vote in Wisconsin and how it's really a, a major statement being made by what I believe an, an entire segment of the country, even though it was only one state. But we, we can also look at some of the other uh, elections that were actually held uh, around the United States, and uh, and and particularly so the referendums. There was uh, San Jose and also San Diego. Now we all know California. This is where they 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 breed. Democrats. This is where they breed liberals. And they had a referendum on, on both of their ballots for each city uh, to, in essence, stop paying such exorbitant retirement rates to these city workers. Uh, it's killing them. It, it, I mean, it's forcing cities to go into bankruptcy because of what the unions have, have done uh, to them. And sadly, uh, we have to give credit where credit's due. Politicians have agreed to it. And of course, in California, when you're all Democrats, they, of course, agreed to all of this union stuff because they knew they had money to help them get elected next time. Well, people are standing up because I think people, regardless of, forget forget race, forget gender, forget political you know, sides, forget all of that. They seem to be wanting to stand up for what's right. And in San Jose, they had 70%, 70 to 30% said, absolutely, pass the bill. We want this stopped now. Uh, San Diego, which is, the, uh, in, I think they're in the top 10 or maybe even the top 5 uh, size-wise uh, for cities in California. But San Diego, 66% of the people said the same thing. Now, of course, the unions turned around and immediately filed lawsuits, which is so funny when we were watching this. I told my wife that, you know, you watch. They're going to file lawsuits, and the judges are going to overturn them because they're unconstitutional. And you watch. That's what's going to happen. They do it all the time Uh uh, just so they can get their liberal agenda across. And the people who sell that for them is the unions. So they're going to wind up saying that those voters didn't know what they were doing. It, It does show... To some degree of certainty, things may be changing. Hope may still exist here in the United States. <laughs> I think so. I will call it a trend, well, a beginning trend perhaps, of people saying having political ideals is great, but at the end of the day, I need to have a job. At the end of the day, I want to know that I'll have uh, you know, a country to retire into. Yeah, to have a job at to, to have a job at to have a you know have a country that's not going to you know the way of Russia, you know where people are standing in bread lines. Yeah, that's not going the way of Greece where people are going out and um, essentially throwing a big hissy fit because people aren't bottle feeding. Well, them. yeah, they've ha- they've been forced off the nanny state. They're having to try and wean these people off of what they themselves, the government, has created. They created the monster, and well, the people encouraged it. Exactly. This is where we have to take responsibility for the way that we have been voting. Obviously, I'm not against social programs, but I think that first and foremost, social programs ought to come by way of tzedakah, not by way of of a government. Any sort of government institution, any sort of government uh, program is going to be filled with all sorts of unnecessary spending. A bureaucracy does not know how to 
to be efficient. It does not immediately get people the money that they need. What we ought to be doing is tzedakah. And the only reason that the government ever had to get involved in this is because we as a people failed as individuals to take care of people in our community, take care of those around us. That's where all this stuff started from. Again, let's take the whole abortion issue. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a this is an issue that I hold Christians responsible for. And let me tell you why. So the sages tell us that a person who, who comes, forbids something permitted, will eventually come and permit something forbidden. Christians treated people who had relations out of wedlock as if they were pariahs of society. Mm-hmm. And they banished them and, and socially turned their back on them. Mm-hmm. Even though what they did was not against Torah. Right. So what right. happens? This builds up. Am I really an evil person for ha- for having a baby out of out of wedlock? So what do, what do, what do young mothers start doing? They become desperate. What can I do? I don't want to. I don't want my family and my friends to turn their backs on me. I don't. So what do they do? They start uh, looking into something called abortion, and eventually people start feeling so sorry for these 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 mothers that they start saying oh you know this is ridiculous we should actually be supporting them so they turn around and they be, they take something like abortion and it becomes a, a a fighting topic because those of us who know abortion is wrong according to the torah that's wrong we've come to permit it as a society right well that's the uh, the old saying that which you tolerate today you will embrace tomorrow and that's a glowing example of it but there's also something for being too intolerant then you create crises for yourself mm-hmm. so you have a lot of people out there who think that uh, these people you know you know what uh, a man and a woman shack up together you know what they are they're married period there's a lot that we've lost in this country we've lost a lot of of, of control we make fun of institutions like marriage on the one hand we've been too unforgiving and now we've become too forgiving. Right. Uh, you know, and I, I think in, in defense of the, the, the masses, I, the, the ones that I really hold responsible are, are the, the church leaders because they're the ones teaching all of this. Sure, I agree. And, uh, you know, they have to take a big share of the blame as far as I'm concerned because, in essence, they're, they're sheep, which they are the shepherd for, are basically just following their lead. So... You know, as far as the, the, the sheep are concerned, the people, they're doing what what's right. Absolutely. And, and after a while, even if you feel guilty about it, they still it still seems to be right because he said so. And then after a while, it just goes on for so long, there is no more guilt associated with it. That's right. Well, but, but what happens? What, what's happening in this country? People are moving more and more away from, from belief in God. They're they're taking God and he's becoming you know they're they're increasingly apathetic about God and about their responsibility to to perform his mitzvot the mitzvot that he's created for us and these mitzvot are are actually good for us these commandments are good for us for every one of us they they heal us every mitzvot that we violate creates harm for us spiritually and as a result physically we have an opportunity now to turn that around and start. Keeping them as vote properly, properly, right? The way they're meant to be kept, and encourage it in our leaders. In fact, demand it from our leaders. Absolutely. And only those are those people are the ones that you vote into office. Absolutely. And you'll see things change. Well, Adam, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Man, this is a, a great topic. I you know could really talk on this for a long time, but we want to go ahead and bring in Rabbi Katz because I know he's. I love his teachings. I mean, every time I, I sit and listen to to him teach. 
my jaw just drops to the floor because I'm just amazed. I mean, it's so much, so much of this stuff I haven't heard before. So let's go ahead and bring him on in here, Rabbi Katz. Right, come on board. Welcome back for another radio broadcast this week in the Academy of Shem and Aver. I am Rabbi David Katz, and this week we are going to talk about something pretty interesting. In the Torah, we come across some statements made by Moses that are rather difficult to understand. There's a general response, and there's a beautiful answer. Now, what is, what is, what is the situation? In the Jewish holiday of Purim, we read the, the weekly Torah portion where... Hashem is angry at the Jewish people for making the golden calf. Moses prays for salvation and forgiveness. And he says, if you don't forgive me, then take me out of your book. And in the, 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 Torah, the weekly Torah portion, in that week, it's the only Torah portion from the, from the onset of Moses where Moses' name is not mentioned at all. And they say that the, the decree was fulfilled in removing Moses' name from the Torah as requested. Now let's t- take this a little deeper and see how it relates back to Shem. The one thing missing from the Torah, largely is really, where is Shem? We don't really know much about Shem, but yet there's a lot of literature written about him. We find a lot of peripheral. But where does Hashem himself speak about Shem? Does he even speak about him? And if not, why not? So let's get a little bit more of a background about Shem and why he seems to be missing from the Torah. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? How do we judge this? How do we perceive a blatant omission of a character who is of the utmost importance, but because of the omission, is he important at all? A lot of people might even argue and suggest that he's not that important. Yet we're finding from the words and writings of the rabbis of 2,000 years that he is of the utmost importance. So what's going on? The Kabbalist of the holy city of Sfat, the Arizal, makes some very interesting statements. That Moses is a reincarnation of Shem. In the Torah, Moses says to God, If I have found grace in your eyes, and Hashem says, I've known you by name. Now, the word grace, chen, is the same letters as noach, noah. And the, name, the, the word name is the same spelling as the name Shem. Shem means name. So Moses acknowledges that Hashem has known him by name. And the Arizal suggests 
that Moses has the name spelled Mem Shin Hey, which stands for the, re- the, the rectification of the reincarnation of the Hey for Abel, Hevel, the Shin for Shes, Seth, son of Adam, to compensate for Adam's loss of Abel. And the Mem stands for Moses, Moshe. Yet we find somewhere else in the, in the writings of the Arizal that Noah and Shem, in fact, are reincarnations of each other, and it should not be surprising that they lived at the same time. And they come together in Moses. Now Moses is aware of Shem, as Moses' name, Mem Shin Hey, contains the name Shem by itself, the same Mem and Shin. So Moses says, in relationship to Hashem, I know that you've known me by name. I know that you've known me as Shem. But if I have found grace in your eyes, then my prayer should be acknowledged. Grace, Noah. He was not aware that Noah was in him as a reincarnation. Thus the acknowledgement, I've known you by name. But if... I found grace in your eyes. We find further on, now that we understand that Moses and Shem are a proper reincarnation, when Moses asks Hashem, if you don't forgive the Jewish people, then remove me from the book you've written. And if, uh, in the Hebrew, the language is, and if you, if not, and if not, remove me, please, from the book that you have written. This is from Exodus 32, 32. When you, interestingly enough, again, we said that Moses' name was removed from the Torah at that time. That in the Torah weekly portion, by Purim, Moses is not mentioned in the Torah. They say that this was a fulfilled judgment or decree on Moses. He was removed effectively from the Torah. But let's look a little deeper again. If not, he says, remove me please from the book you have written. When we look at the words in Hebrew, please, from the book that you've written, Again, in context of, and if not, remove me. Please, from the book that you have written, the initial letters of that expression, please, from the book that you have written, contains the word na, please, nun, from your book, the letter mem, the letter aleph, from asher, or that, and that you have written, the letter kaf, stands for written. When we take those four letters, the Nun, the Mem, the Aleph, and the Kaf, and we read it from left to right, it spells K-A-Men. We know that when we make a blessing, when we answer Amen, so it may it be so. Yes, I concur to the sanctity of what you've said. So when Moses says, please remove me from the book that you have written, the Torah answers K-A-Men. Like, it's like Hashem says, like it is so. Yes, concurred. 
Now where do we see the fulfillment of this? We already suggested that Moses was gone at one point, but then we suggested another, another avenue, that Moses is the reincarnation of Shem. So, if Moses was removed from one Torah portion, what is this ki'amin, like the uh, sanctification of the request? The request happened. Where? The Torah starts with Bereshis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The beginning of Genesis. The next Torah portion, Noah. The Torah portion of Noah. And what comes next should be the Torah portion of Shem. But it's not. We learn Lech Lecha. Go to Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, commanded to Abraham. Thus what we find is a big glaring hole in the Torah. Where is Shem? You go from Adam to Noah, representing the reincarnations going into Moses. Moses continues the mission of Abraham. Where's Shem? So we learn that after the binding of Isaac, the Akedah, Isaac was ready to learn Torah. Abraham had reached the level of Shem. And Isaac went to learn, not by Abraham his father, but by the academy of Shem and Aver, to learn none other than the Torah of Abraham. As it is said, you should learn from two academies. One, the Jewish academy of Abraham. The other, from the academy of the Noahide. Essentially, Shem. There's 2,000 years of chaos. Torah without vessels. Raw power of Torah. 2,000 years of Torah. As depicted by Abraham. And Shem was the 2,000 years of Tohu. Shem thereby teaches the Torah from the vessels given by Abraham. He saw in Abraham, you have the ability to manifest the entire Torah in your life. Thus Shem taught over the Torah that would last until Mount Sinai, where Shem would go and wait till the delivery of the Torah through his incarnation at the same time, Moses. And then you come to the last 2,000 years of creation. From the destruction of the second temple till today. Every generation of literature has contributed bits and pieces of the the tradition and Torah of Shem. And this last 2,000 years was called the 2,000 years of Messiah. What we have at the end is a recapturing of the Torah of Shem that was omitted from the Torah when God said, like Amen. It's like Hashem said, Amen, you're out. But it's not coming as a punishment to Shem. When Hashem addressed Moses, you are going to be blotted out. And it came into effect by Shem. It's not a punishment of Shem. We see that the, con- the, the constriction of God g- creates a greater revelation. The creation came about by a vacuum of divinity. So that there would be a holy temple built below. And there would be a greater revelation of God. Hence the idea of creation. Thus, by Shem's omission from the Torah, we come to a greater revelation of the Torah of Shem. Thus, we would have the 2,000 years of chaos of what Shem was, but we don't have access. What happened to him then? All we know is he was there. 
and he finished the 2,000 years. Abraham born in 1948 on the Jewish calendar, the advent of the Torah, as taught by Shem. Now, with the Torah we have is in the vessels of Abraham. We understand it through Abraham. So the recapturing of the tradition and Torah of Shem from the writing, particularly the writing, Hashem blotted this character out of the book that is written, and through the writing, when the oral Torah begins to be written for the Jewish people through 2,000 years, we find the recapturing uh, through the hand of the rites the, through the, in, the, in the text, the recapturing of the Torah of Shem. Thus we find that the, 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 the newness, the quality of being new, is an even greater revelation than had it have been written initially. Thus the greatness of the Torah, we're going to find in the end of days, the 2,000 years of Messiah, is retroactively falling on the, on the life, Torah, and experiences of Shem, who Shem, was Shem that delivered to us on Mount Sinai as a reincarnation of Moses, that the eternal Torah as it will be, as taught by Shem. That's all for this week. Thank you for tuning in. See you next time. I'm Rabbi David Katz. Thank you very much. Welcome back, folks. Rabbi Katz, that once again was uh, just an, an outstanding teaching. Adam, thank you so much for helping me get my jaw off the floor so I could you know, wind the show up here. <laughs> but, folks, we're so glad that you uh, stuck around with us for the in- entire hour. We, we love you. Uh, we hope you come back next week. And don't forget, send us your emails at Noahide at Israel National Radio. And uh, for now, Shavua Tov. We will catch you next week. See you next week. This is a moment in Jewish history. After Egypt conquered the Sinai and Gaza Strip in 1948, Fedayin terrorists began cross-border attacks on Israel. In 1956, when Gamal Abdel Nasser, the leader of Egypt, closed the Suez Canal and cut off shipping from Israel's port of Elat, Israel was ready to attack. Initially, French and British troops participated. They joined Israel in order to maintain their hold on the Middle East and to prevent the encroachment of communism as Egypt was making closer ties with the Soviet Union. But Israel did almost all the fighting, taking the entire Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip in a matter of days. A year later, in an American-brokered deal, Israel relinquished control of those areas back to Egypt. But she gained vital information that led to the swift victory of the Six-Day War in 1967, when she again captured the Sinai and Gaza. This Jewish history moment was brought to you by Israel National Radio.